Hey, good morning, church. Let's go ahead and get on our feet. We got something to celebrate this morning. Happy Sunday. Let's turn our eyes towards our Savior and to where our help comes from. Come on, church. Sunday. Welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us. Would you turn, greet, and welcome the people that you're around today, this morning?
We came to re-engage because we had become roommates. We were looking forward to learning some new things to help improve our marriage. There was an infidelity and a pornography addiction that she wasn't aware of. We were headed for divorce. We heard it was a safe place to reconnect with your spouse. And I had an affair and I was ready to leave my family for it. We were in a downward spiral in our marriage. Uh, we were just constantly fighting. The first time we walked into re-engage, I actually felt hope. I was just very nervous to see what was going to be revealed. I felt, finally, this is a place where I do not have to pretend. This class would require sharing and transparency, which was not something that I was used to. I really didn't want to tell people about what was going on in our marriage. I was very fearful. Uh, being an atheist, I had never willingly walked into a church. And I was so grateful as we walked in that there were people there to greet us that were so kind. The first time I walked into Reengage, I felt hope and peace. It was the first time I had ever heard people talk about really hard things they had been through and also hear that it could be okay. One of the biggest things I realized was that I was the biggest problem in our marriage, not my spouse. I had blocked out feelings, not only from my wife, but also from myself. We did an amazing job sweeping conflict under the rug, which over the years just resulted in resentment and uh, mistrust. Terry and I have been married for 19 years, and there are still areas that we can improve on. One of the biggest things I realized going through Reengage was how God's Word came alive. God actually had designed marriage. Our Reengage couples poured love into us and accepted us uh, without any expectation and there was a, a true desire to understand and not necessarily judge what I was doing. One of the things I, I liked about Reengage was being able to share our story, talk about it freely in a safe environment. Now our marriage is characterized as one full of love and grace. Our marriage is characterized by putting Christ at the center. Daily prayers, a lot of laughter. It's not perfect, but our disagreements are now opportunities. If you're considering coming to re-engage, the one thing I would want you to know is that you will be surprised at the relationships that you'll build there. It's worth giving God an opportunity to come in to your marriage. All right, well, we would love to invite you to be a part of that ministry. If you're at all interested in that, um, just because it strikes your interest and you feel like you're doing pretty well in your marriage, but you'd like to grow, or if you're dealing with anything that you just need help in, we would love to invite you to be a part of that. You can learn more about registering for Reengage by looking in your bulletin, looking online, or if you visit the connection counter after service, it's through these doors to the right where you can talk and just learn a little bit more about it and just explore what it's like to be a part of that. One more event we've got coming up that I'd love to invite you to on February 5th. This is a little bit different than the slide, but on February 5th on Sunday at 4.30, we'll be having our annual Celebrate God event. Uh, the Hebrews, God's people, they had a word in Hebrew that we always translate to as praise in our language whenever we read it in the Bible. Uh, but what they had was a word that says tauda. And sometimes when they use this word specifically, they meant praising God for what he has already done and praising God for what he's going to do. This is praising God for prayers that weren't answered yet, but they were able to praise in confidence because of what God has already done. 
So as we enter the new year, if you're anything like me, I am so focused on the rest of 2023. I'm filled with this motivation and New Year's resolutions to get everything, all the stuff that I want to get done or all the petitions that I'm bringing to God, I am so focused on what's next. And that's why this event is really healthy for me at the beginning of every year to pause and before I focus on that, look back on what God has already done. And in celebrating what God has done, then I'm able to praise and pray for what he's going to do. So this would be a great event with food, with fellowship. We'll meet together at 4.30. We'll have a time of praying and celebrating together. You'll hear more details about exactly what that night's going to look like and how you can be a part of testifying to what God has done over the past year. But we want to be a people characterized by praising God for what he's done and showing gratefulness and celebration for what he did through the year of 2022. So I'd love to invite you to that. As we move forward in our worship, I want to remind you of the different ways that you can be giving. And as we prepare our hearts for that, we're going to be singing songs of living in God's spirit. Pastor Nick is going to come up in a bit and preach about living truth. And, and this morning, what we really want to encourage you in is that we don't do any of this Christian life through our own spirit. All of it we do through the Spirit of Christ, through the Holy Spirit that he's given us. So we're going to take some time as a church and just sing these songs and commit ourselves to walking in that spirit. Would you stand with us as we turn our eyes towards our Savior? Yes. 
Your name, your name 
for this next song. Would you pray with me? Lord, by your spirit, you have gifted us victory over death and guilt. And you promise in Ephesians 3.12 that in Jesus and through faith, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. Galatians 5 tells us of that freedom, that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Father, let your church act in that freedom today. God, as you tell us at the end of Galatians 5, I pray that your church, the people in this space, LEFC, we would live in freedom and live by your spirit to act out this fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Lord, I pray that we would be filled with love for God and for others. Lord, I pray that we would be filled with joy for the victory that you have won. I pray that we would be filled with peace and confidence of your finished work. I pray that we would be filled with patience and confidence of your unfinished work. I pray that we will be filled with kindness in the way we treat those who bring out the worst in us. I pray that we will be filled with goodness coming from you and your example. I pray that we will be filled with faithfulness clinging to your promises and your spirit. I pray that we will be filled with gentleness in our conversations and our actions, that the world would see that. I pray that we'd be filled with self-control, that in our freedom we would not be swayed by our instincts or our flesh, but only by your spirit. Spirit, speak to us as we pursue these things. We want to hear your voice. We seek you, Lord.
Lord, would you open our hearts to receive what you want to say to us? Would you clear our minds of the distractions of this world? And would you allow us to hear your truth? Pray that you would bless Pastor Nick as he brings your word to us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. My name is Nick. I'm the director of student ministries here at LEFC, and I have the privilege to continue our series on the four marks of a disciple. Here at our church, our mission is to make disciples, but we kind of have to know what a disciple is in order to make them. And so we seek to define and identify a disciple by these four marks. Love God, love people, live truth, and proclaim Jesus. In the past two weeks, we've been taking a look at what it means, it looks like, to love God and to love people. And now this week, we land on the third one, live truth. So where I'm headed this morning is I'd like to start off by defining what is truth, what does it look like, what is it, and then what is living something out, what does that look like, so that we can put them together and create a definition for what it looks like to live truth. And then from there, talk a little bit about how does the gospel impact our ability to live truth? By what power do we seek to live that truth out? And what are some stumbling blocks that get in our way when we seek to live truth by the power of the Lord? So that's where we're headed this morning. Let us open in prayer. Father, thank you that we can gather here together. Lord, I thank you that you are in our midst because we have gathered in your name. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word and your truth God, and I pray that we would be affected by you, God, by who you are. I pray that the word would move our hearts, Lord, and I pray that we would be a people. We would be disciples who seek to live truth. I pray these things in your powerful name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we got to start off with the first question. What is truth? So right away, we might be inclined to go, this right here, Nick, this is truth. This is the word of God, the holy scriptures. When we talk about truth, this is it. And that's not wrong. I agree with that. But I think we have to ask, what kind of truth is this? How do we navigate it as truth? Because oftentimes, I think we can be inclined to treat it as a type of truth that it's not. Maybe like it's like a book of traffic regulations, bunch of do's, do nots. When I read uh, stop at a red light, I should stop. And when I see go on a green light, I should go. So it's a I do or I do not. The question is, is it supposed to be more? 
in uh, crossover, we have three core values, knowledge, affection, and obedience. We seek to grow in our knowledge of the Lord, our affections in the Lord, and our obedience to the Lord. And in the past year and a half, we've been focusing on this middle one, affections, because we feel like often it gets missed. Oftentimes, we minimize it to just knowing things and then doing things. I must know, therefore I can do. Kind of like a book of traffic regulations. But I think Jesus talks about truth in a different way and how we're supposed to engage with this. So I'm going to ask that you open up your Bibles to John 14. If you don't have your Bibles, there will be ushers coming up and down the aisles. If you just wave your hand, they'll be happy to give you one. If you have your phones, if you open up the Bible app, go into events and click on LEFC. It'll give you the notes and the passages. John 14. John is the last gospel right after Luke. It's right before the book of Acts. So to give you a little context here, Jesus has just told his disciples that he's going to be going away. And he says, you can't follow me now, but you will be able to follow me later. And he gives this image, this example that is real to them to paint that picture. He says, where my father is, there's many rooms. And I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that made sense because in that time when a man and a woman were betrothed to be married, the man would go and prepare a place for him and his wife to live. And then once they had become married, they would go and live in that place. So Jesus is using this imagery to create in their minds, I'm going to go away, but you will follow me later. I'm just preparing a place for you. Some of this language might be familiar to some of you who journeyed through our series on Matthew, where we talked about Jesus returning and this idea of us waiting upon him while he prepares a place for us. So they hear this and they go, okay, Lord, you're going away. We can't go with you, but we'll go with you later. And it starts to create confusion where Thomas speaks up. So we're going to be starting in verse 5. Follow along with me. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So right away, Thomas goes, hold on a second. How are we supposed to know the way where you're at if we're not going with you right away? And Jesus says, I'm that way. I'm the truth. I am the life. You're asking the way back to the Father, the way home. It's me. I am truth. Seems a little different. Jesus is now claiming he is truth. He also talks about truth in another place. Turn a couple chapters earlier to John 8. Jesus has just claimed to be truth, to be the way, and to be life. Now here in John 8, he's talking about who he is and his relationship with the Father. He's talking about his intimacy with the Father. And in verse 30 of chapter 8, it says, Even as he spoke, many believed in him. Many believed in him. This idea of people started to put their faith in him, wanted to follow him because of what he was talking about. But then in verse 31, it says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said. There seems to be a transition here, a difference in what he's talking about. Verse 30, it sounds like he's talking about people believed in him, people that have faith in him. 
and wanted to follow him. And then to the Jews who are aware of the law, aware of the coming Messiah, who had believed him. It's almost like they have cognitively agreed. They, in their minds, affirm, but they have not, with their hearts, put faith in or followed Jesus. And so it's to this that Jesus says, verse 31, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So here again, Jesus talks about truth, but he says to those Jews who are believing, hearing and going, I think I understand, I get it, I believe. And he says, yes, but if you hold to my teachings, then you are my disciples. In the original Greek, this hold to my teaching can be translated as to abide, to stay, or remain in his word. So Jesus is saying, if you abide in my teaching, in my word, then, only then are you my disciples. It's not just a head knowledge of, yeah, I believe that. If you believe it to the core and then you follow what I've spoken, then you are my disciples. But then he says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What is this truth? John 14, Jesus just claimed to be the truth. It sounds like it's the case here as well. Because they say, wait a second, we haven't been a slave of anyone. You've been a slave to sin. And catch us in verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who set you free. If you hold to my teachings, then you will be my disciples and know me intimately. You, we will have a relationship and then you will be set free. The truth here, what Jesus is talking about, is a person and it's himself. So Jesus says, when you look at this, when you read this, when you engage with this, it's not an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end, and I'm it. It speaks of me. It reveals me. So when we read this, we seek truth about the character of God. We seek to know a person who claims to be truth. And what happens, the beautiful thing is, is it's not like a book of traffic regulations. What it is, is it pierces our hearts and then begins to reshape our entire worldview. It shapes everything that we see. C.S. Lewis has a quote in Weight of Glory where he says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. What C.S. Lewis is saying here is following Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, is much more than a do and do not do, or knowing and then seeking to do. It completely reshapes everything about you. A relationship with Jesus is not just like watching the sunrise, but also seeing it and then it impacting everything about you and everything that you see. But that's a bold claim for Jesus to say. I am truth. Not I have truth. Not I brought truth with me. I am truth. Why is he able to claim that? Because he's the son of God, both God and man. 
Absolutely. But he's also able to claim that because Christ displays perfectly what God intended for humanity. Christ can claim that he is truth because he displays perfectly what God intended for humanity while he was on earth. And that was relationship with the Father. Jesus lived a life of knowing God intimately, being satisfied in him and obeying him, which is how God created us. That was the original intention. So Jesus can claim, I am the truth, because he has displayed perfectly God's intention for humanity. So if that is truth, if truth is a person and it's Jesus, because he has perfectly displayed God's intentions for humanity, then what does it mean to live something out? Here, I don't want to spend too much time, because even as you hear this, you're probably, an idea comes to your mind. I would say to live something out is to continually act and display it. If we are to live something out, it has to be continual. We have to continually act and display it. I can't say I live a life of mercy because I showed mercy that one time. Or I can't say I live a life of love when I show love here and there, but not that much. To live something out means there must be this continual doing and doing over and over again. But there's something else that I want to hit regarding living something out that I think is important. When we live something, it comes from the depths of our hearts. We can't live something out continually and deeply, especially like a life in Christ, without there being heart-level change and impact. We can't seek to just do and do. I can't say I'm going to live a life of mercy and go, I saw it one time, it looks really cool, I'm going to try it the rest of my life. It has to be that mercy has so impacted, pierced, and reshaped my heart that it has not become just something I do, but become something I am. And because it becomes something that I live out. So living something out is continual, but there also must be some level of heart impact for us to do. So if we put those together, this idea of Jesus being the truth and living something out being continual and heart level, then we can define living truth as to act and live in a manner that God intended for humanity, which has been revealed to us through Jesus. That is what we as disciples are called to do. We are called to act and live in a manner that God intended for humanity, that he reveals in his word and through Jesus. I hope you hear that. And inside you go, there's no way I do that. Live like Jesus? How the heck am I supposed to do that? I hope that's the response because that's the point of the gospel. That's where the gospel comes in. The gospel redeems our possibility of ever living the way God intended. You see, God created us with this intention to be in relationship with him. But sin came in and distorted it, and we were broken, and we rebelled against God because we wanted to be the God of our own lives. And what God did was he came to earth as a man and said, I'm going to live the perfect life, the life as I intended, and then offer it to you by dying on a cross and paying your penalty. And then I'm going to rise again, defeating this hold that sin and death have over you so that you can live as I intended. You can live truth. And see, here, church, is where I'm afraid the gospel might be minimized. 
We might minimize the gospel to just my salvation. I was headed towards hell. I was headed to destruction. But now, because I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. And we miss this idea that God is redeeming and restoring us back to something. We were saved for something. We were saved towards something. And that is God redeeming us. And we see that even the way Jesus engages with the law and the Ten Commandments. When Jesus brings up the law, it's not, yeah, those are old. Get rid of those. No, he says, I've not come to abolish those. I've come to fulfill them. So we see Jesus not only take these laws and go, I've come to fulfill them, but he takes them to a heart level as well, which is where we just talked about our actions flow out of. So we're not going to read it this morning, but I encourage you in your own time, read Matthew 5, 17 to 48. Here, Jesus starts taking these laws that they know and then takes them to a heart level. So he says things like, you have heard it said, don't murder. But I say, even if you hate a brother or sister, you've committed murder in your heart. And you have heard it said not to commit adultery. But I say, even when you look lustfully, you commit adultery in your heart. So Jesus starts to identify these things that we're supposed to be doing, we can't possibly do unless something is restored in us. There's a heart issue here. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel redeems our hearts so that living truth can be possible. And that's a beautiful thing. But then we ask, okay, but now what? How do we seek to live truth? Yay, the gospel has saved. It's redeeming me. It makes it possible for me to live truth. How do I do that? I think in order to answer that question, we need to shift to a different question, which is, by what power do I seek to live truth out? That gets at the, the core of the question. By what power do I seek to live truth out? And church, if I could just be transparent, this is where, at, in preparation and praying, this is where my heart was heavy. As I sat with this idea of living truth and started to think, by what power do we live by? My heart just became heavy. Because I started to realize especially myself, many of us acknowledge our helplessness and our need for a savior. But we deny and neglect that power when it comes to living truth. We can acknowledge, I am helpless. Lord, I need saved. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I can't do this myself. I need you. And we can cry that out in regards to our salvation. But then now that we've been saved and we're called to live in a particular manner, we completely forget about that power. We neglect that power because we think we can do it on our own. And my heart was heavy because as I prayed, I couldn't help but praying, Lord, could somebody else teach this? Could somebody else speak about this? Because I know the entire time that I'm going to talk about this in my heart and in my mind, I, I would just be thinking, Nick, you are a hypocrite. You're, you're talking about living not by your power but the power of the Lord, yet look at the way you live. Look at how you rely upon pride or your identity or control in order to live truth. So 
So I hope you hear this not as um, a pastor or a preacher up front knowing something that I need to teach you or reveal to you. I hope you hear it from a broken man going, I think I'm missing something about living truth. And I believe I might not be alone. Many of us will acknowledge our helplessness and need for a savior, yet we neglect and forget that power when it comes to living truth. Paul speaks some truth about this very topic. So if you'd open up to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. Here, Paul is talking about freedom in Christ and what it looks like to live a life by the Spirit. I'm going to be starting in verse 13. Follow along with me. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Catch this. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So Paul starts off by saying, brothers and sisters, you've been called to be free. Here we have to acknowledge, as people who live or possibly grew up in America, our idea of freedom gets put into this text. That, we need to acknowledge that. Our definition of freedom, being able to say, do whatever I want, become whatever I want, gets put into this text. I have no master, I have nothing holding me gets put in this text. So when I hear Paul say, you were called to be free, I hear, heck yeah. There's nobody, there's nobody stopping me from doing anything. But what bothers me is in the next sentence, he says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. You just said I was free, and then you told me what to do. How does that work? Either my idea of this freedom might be a little off, or Paul's got some things mixed up. I'd probably say it was the first one. But if we continue on, we start to see what he talks about. He starts to say, so I say, walk by the Spirit. And he starts talking about this conflict in us, saying that you, when you became a believer, when you started following Jesus, you received the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is living in you. Your body is now a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. But you are also still being redeemed. So there is this flesh that is still trying to gratify itself. So there's a war going on inside of you. There's the, conf there's the conflict between the flesh and the Spirit. So Paul says in verse 17, you aren't free to do whatever you want. You're not actually free to just do whatever you want. Because the problem is, is with this war going on inside of you, if you act like you can do whatever you want, you're going to gratify the flesh. There will be times because the Lord is redeeming that you walk by the Spirit, but we'll still be gratifying the flesh, which is not what we're called to do. 
So here's what Paul's solution is. You're not free to do whatever you want. You're free to submit to the Spirit. I say walk and be led by the Spirit. You are not free from any master. You're just free from an oppressive, destructive, and evil one that has held on to you. You are free from that. But now you have a new master who has designed you, has created you, who designed you to be satisfied in him. And that is what Paul is calling us to submit to. He says, don't do whatever you want. Submit to the spirit and then walk and be led by that. So Paul's living truth is you're not supposed to be living by your own power. You're, not, you're supposed to be living by the power of the spirit. We are to live a life submitting to and being led by the Spirit. Because the truth is, the very power that has saved you is the same power that sanctifies you to live a holy life. The very same power that rescued you from your brokenness, from your sin, is the same power that is continuing to redeem you and that helps you to live truth. Some of you might say... That makes sense to me. I, I even agree with that. But where do I start? How do I even go about doing that? Amen to living by the Spirit. But I don't even know where to begin. Why don't we start in the same place that we did when we realized we needed rescued? When we realized our helpless estate, we realized our sin, we realized our brokenness, our first response was, I'm going to do this myself. Our first response was, Lord, I need you. It is not I can do it on my own. It's, Lord, I need you to rescue me. I can't do this by myself. Why don't we start there when we seek to live truth? Why don't we start there when we seek to love our neighbor? When we seek to avoid lustful thoughts or avoid gossiping? Crying out to the Lord, I can't live like this without you. I want to love my wife as best as I can. I can't do that on my own. Let us start with the crying out for help as we seek to live truth. Not trying to do it on our, on our own, trying harder, tightening up our shoelaces and getting it done ourselves. But the reality is, there are certain roadblocks, certain things that get in our way as we seek to live by the power of the Spirit. And these are things that lead us back into our own power. I want to identify a couple of these so that as we reflect on, Lord, I want to live by your spirit, not by my own power. What are some of these that are real for you? What are these that cause you to turn back into your power? The first one I think of is image and identity. Our desire to be seen as someone who lives truth causes us to rely upon our own power whether you lead a Bible study, whether you're the only Christian in your class at work, whether you're a leader, whether you're on staff in ministry, our, this image of us as followers of Jesus and this expectation that we live truth can itself lead us into doing it by our own power. And the reason for that is there's an immediacy to it. People are watching me. I, oh, I have to live truth. I'm a Christian. Well, I don't have time to cry out. I don't have time to pray. I'm just going to do it myself. 
this image, this identity that's on us can lead us into our own power. Or maybe it's our culture. I identified it a little bit, but our culture around us can propel us to live by our own power. The American narrative is independence. To achieve anything by the power within. You can become whatever. That type of thinking and mindset leads us into doing things by our own power, to living by our own power. Or maybe it's low standards. Maybe God's holiness, this way that I'm supposed to live, this truth, has been minimized and the bar has been lowered so that I can achieve it. Maybe the Christian life to me in my mind is just don't say cuss words, uh, don't have sex before marriage, and don't get drunk. Is that it? If we lower the bar to that standard, then we go, I can do that myself. I don't need help. I can do this by my own power. I don't know if any of you play basketball, but I'm 5'8". I have never been able to dunk. But when I want to feel like I can dunk, what do you think I do? I lower the net. Then I feel super tall. I'm doing backwards dunks and everything. Maybe in the same way with this truth, this holiness that we're supposed to be living, we lower the bar so that we go, oh, I can dunk that. Live by the power of the Spirit. I don't need it. I can do it myself. Or maybe it's control. Maybe for those of us who are wired for control, we need to have our hands in things. We need to have it done our way just so that we can say, yes, I did that. Maybe that mindset, that heart, leads us into relying upon our own power. Our desire and need for control leads us into the driver's seat. Or maybe it's pride. Maybe our high view of ourselves leads us into the position of God in our lives. Maybe it's, I don't lower the bar, I keep it where it's at, but I think I can actually attain that. I can actually live like that. I can actually do that. Maybe it's not I lower the net. Maybe I'm just not aware I'm 5'8". And I think I'm 6'4", and I can actually dunk. Maybe our high view of ourselves, this pride within us, leads us to believe we can actually do this on our own. Or maybe, lastly, maybe it's just ignorance. Maybe we don't live by the Spirit because we don't know how to. We say, I want to live not by my own power, but I keep doing it because I don't know how to do anything else. Each one of these leads us into thinking that we can do it on our own, thinking that our power is enough. And as we saw in Galatians 5, Paul says, that's just not true. So as you hear these, as you reflect upon these, which one are you? Which one impacts your ability to walk by the Spirit? Is it pride? Is it control? Is it a low standard? Or is it all of them? I empathize with that. That's how I came up with the list. But identifying some of these roadblocks can help us cry out specifically. Lord, would you help me with my pride? I keep thinking too highly of myself, which leads me into being the God of my own life. 
which is not what you intended? Is it control? Lord, would you help me just to let go and recognize that you are a power far beyond what I could ever achieve, what I could ever do in my own life? Whatever it is, I would encourage us to respond and to seek to live truth in two ways. Number one, that we would cry out. That we would just cry out for help. We wouldn't seek to just do more, to know more, do more, try harder. That we would genuinely go, I can't do this on my own. I need your help, Lord. I want to love as you have called me to love, and I can't do that without you. And second, that we would submit to that help. We can cry out, but if we don't actually submit and allow ourselves to be helped, we miss it. We can drown and go, somebody save me, quick. And the lifeguard comes out and starts pulling me in. But as soon as I realize people watching me and I start to get embarrassed, get off me, I was fine. Submitting to the help is just as important to the crying out itself. And there is a hope in that church. The hope is that when we cry out to the Lord, he hears us. And when we pray according to his will, he will answer. This cry of, Lord, would you help me, is one he will faithfully answer. That is our hope. The very power that has saved you is the same power that can help us live truth. So let us be disciples who live truth. Let us be a church who seeks to live truth. But let us do it by relying upon the power of the Spirit so that we might not gratify the flesh. Let us acknowledge, God, I'm not enough to live this truth. Would you help me? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a faithful God that when we cry out to you, you are faithful to respond. You hear us because you desire a relationship with us. Lord, thank you that you are truth, Jesus. Thank you that you have revealed that truth to us and help us to live it. Lord, we want to be disciples who hold and abide to your teaching. but we want to do it by clinging to the very power that has saved us. Would you help us? Lord, if our expectation is to live truth daily, let us cry out daily. Let us recognize our need for you daily. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we want to be led by the Spirit. We want to be able to respond to the Spirit that God has given us. So as we move into this time of response, um, however you want to engage with this, if you want to stand and sing with us, if you want to sit and pray and just listen to what the Spirit is putting on your heart, if you want to meditate on these lyrics, however you want to engage and cry out to God in this moment for help, I invite you to engage and worship in the way that you feel comfortable. Let's lift our eyes towards our Savior. Let's cry out to our God in confidence and hope.
confess our need. And I need you to soften my heart, to break me apart. I need you to open my eyes and see that you're shaping my all I am, I surrender. Give me faith to trust what you say, that you're good and your love is great. I'm broken inside. dark and cleanse every part of me and all
If your heart is heavy, something's weighing on you, grab, before you leave, grab a brother or sister and ask them to pray. Ask them to cry out with you. That is the beauty of us doing life together. You can also stop by the encounter room, which is to my left, your right, where people would be eager to pray with you. But let me close with John 16, 13, where Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says this, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. As disciples, we are called to live truth. Let us be a people that lives truth, but by the power of the Spirit. Let us rely upon the Spirit of truth that will guide us into all truth. You are loved. Go in peace.